Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, uh, Today's podcast is really exciting for me. We're going to be talking about fashion theology. And uh, if some of you think those two might not go together, you're not alone. I thought the same thing when I first heard about this book, but uh, it's it's awesome. So we're going to get into it. This book uh, is actually called Fashion Theology. It's what we're going to be covering, and it's by... Robert Cavolo, Dr. Robert Cavolo. And so uh, I'm really excited to jump in. Before we do that, just want to give a shout out to the Patreon supporters and the Anchor supporters. You guys are the best. You guys are making this podcast happen. If you want to support this podcast, uh, a great way to do that would be go to go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and give me a comment. Uh, that would be awesome. That would actually really help a ton. Please go and do that. But uh, now without further ado... Robert, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, great to have, great to be on the podcast. Oh, I, uh, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, man, this is this is fantastic. So, just jumping in, how did you even get into the idea of fashion theology? Uh, okay, well, I think that there's been several things that kind of led to this. Uh, one is um, uh, there is an emerging theoretical discourse that has just exploded across the globe, Mm -hmm. which I had no idea about when I was going through university, but fashion studies has gone all over the globe. And, uh, it's now, and when you actually start finding out, uh, how many different universities have fashion studies programs, it's quite shocking. Hmm. And so, um, when I was a university, uh, pastor, uh, I just came came across students that were studying this, and I would never even heard of it. Yeah. And so I just was curious what they were studying. Some of them were attending my church. Uh, I was trying to pastor them, shepherd them, and and they could not figure out how their Christianity related to this entire body of theoretical discussion. Hmm. And so, as someone that is convinced that Jesus is Lord of everything, uh, yeah. I was trying to figure out what does it mean. <laughs> Uh, for Jesus to uh, somehow be involved or interact with this field of theoretical discourse. Um, and so there was that kind of thing. There was just people I knew in my, in, in my church that were in the fashion world. Uh, and then strangely, I wanted to go back and do PhD studies, and I picked up um, some Abraham Kuyper, and mm-hmm. uh, I actually uh, w- read a speech he gave, uh, to a bunch of um, educated, uh, reformed folk in the 19th century in Amsterdam. And it was on the relationship between, uh, among other things, fashion and secularization. Hmm. Uh, and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. I've never heard of this. And so he just said all kinds of interesting and somewhat prophetic things in this speech about the relationship between fashion and secularization. So I had to write a, a, do a writing sample to get into a PhD program. And I thought, well, right on this. And uh, and that just began opening the door more and more for me to further explore the issue of the relationship between uh, fashion and the Christian faith. That's so awesome. So it, it came uh, part partly through this pastoral wanting to help your students see 
this part of their life, which they're studying in, in light of Christ, which is awesome. I think that's how uh, things should go. Do you, so you said you read some Kuiper. We talked a little bit off, off air about some Dutch theology stuff. Do you consider yourself within that, that Kuiperian sphere? Uh, Do you, would you consider yourself a a Kuiperian or maybe not? Yeah, I'm Kuiperian. Uh, It's always weird to like line yourself up with any (laughs) given tradition because hopefully your thought is not just simply um, beholding to a tradition uh, and any tradition needs to be updated. Um, So, uh, and no tradition got it all right. Mm -hmm. But um, I would say that I have been deeply imprinted by um, the Kuiperian tradition and I think it's also deeply misunderstood, mm-hmm. sadly, by uh, m- many people that go through seminary. They see it as triumphalistic or they see yeah. it as uh, Constantinian or something like this. <laughs> and, uh, and, and here's a guy that, um, I mean, Kuiper himself broke away from the state church and paid heavily for it. And now he's seen as Constantinian. There's a great, there's something really hilarious about that yeah. and sad and tragic. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I've drawn a lot from him. I, and then, of course, uh, you know, it's actually a, a larger tradition itself. And the Dutch tradition is, it's, it's massive. There's a whole right. theological universe within, within the Dutch Reformed tradition that is so much bigger than Kuiper. Um, yeah. So. That's awesome. Well, and, and this, this does fit in with, yeah, the, the, the Kuiperian project of, of seeing everything in light of Christ. Christ owns everything. There's not one square inch that, does, that he doesn't cry, uh, that Christ doesn't cry mine, you know, and I rule it. And that's so interesting because even fashion, you know, even fashion belongs to Christ. And, and so we have to look in, in light of that. Um, I was really, I was really uh, intrigued as I was reading this uh, about, uh, I was intrigued by Tertullian's view that, you know, whatever is plastered on is, is of the devil. And then what you said about Augustine that, uh, you know, amongst all the other things that he initiated, that he inaugurated, that he started, he's also can be seen as the the father of fashion theory. Um, can you explain Augustine's view on on fashion? How do, how does that work? Yeah. Um, so Augustine was living with um, some of the nascent uh, emerging late empire forms of fashion. Fashion is not something that exists at all times and all places. It's a certain kind of logic within dress that mm-hmm. takes place when there's certain elements. And the late Roman empire was a place where there was fledgling fashion. It's not like the modern kind of fashion system, mm-hmm. but Augustine was deeply aware of this. Um, and in fact, as the book shows, uh, early church fathers uh, were deeply aware of dress, right? (laughs) Like in ways that would put all of us to shame, how serious they took dress and how much they believed it was a very Mm -hmm. important um, uh, facet of of human existence that needed to be taken very serious. But, uh, you know, Augustine finds himself in a unique position as someone who's done extensive thinking on on uh, hermeneutics and, uh, and on how meaning arises within texts. And Augustine is aware mm. that dress is a form of a text. And, um, yeah. and so he begins kind of working some of that out. He also has his two kingdoms theology. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, in some ways, I think, holding him back in ways. Uh, mm. So he's an interesting character. He's definitely pushing against Tertullian's strong division between the church and broader culture. Uh, and yet at the same time, um, I think that he, uh, he also still has some things in there that keeps uh, a full kind of like flowering of fashion in check. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah. But that, that's great. That's a great summary of, of what you wrote in here. And for those listening, it's really hard to summarize uh, 
you know, such a massive work. So buy the book for sure. We're not going to cover everything, uh, but but I do appreciate Robert coming on and, and helping us with this. Uh, can you talk about that the logic again, the logical fashion, how it, it doesn't emerge? Because in my head, there's certain things that that people do where they they absolutize stuff. So everyone's a philosopher, everyone's a theologian, because everyone has philosophical thoughts or a worldview or thoughts about God. But and so it might be easy to say, well, everyone is engaged in fashion because you think about what you put on. But that's that's not what you said. You said fashion arises when certain elements. Can you help us think through um, that that uh, sentiment? You know, how is it that fashion that there cannot be fashion at a certain time and place? Right. We commonly talk about fashion as synonymous with dress, mm-hmm. but um, the fact of the matter is, fashion is not the same thing as dress. Uh, fashion does involve uh, adornment, and so it involves dress. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're speaking about fashion proper, we can talk about anything being fashion. Yeah. Um, but when we just talk, for instance, if we talk about just fashion in general, like we talk about maybe an idea coming into fashion, or we talk about mm-hmm. uh, maybe a certain car that's in fashion, or something like that. What we mean is that 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 object is part of a systematic process of replacement, and currently it is something that is get you know grabbing our attention and is popular but we know that it'll hmm. soon fade and that kind of um that kind of logic of um rapid interplay and replacement yeah. is something that is part of the fashion system okay now um it, there's probably all sorts of ways to define this and debate it but are there sub fashions subcultures so i'm thinking you know it, today what's fashionable popularly is going to be different than the like gothic uh, subculture who wants to wear all black and paint fingernails black and but but in that culture in that subculture that subgroup what's fashionable is wearing those those black things that are kind of countercultural how, how do we think through sub fashions and stuff like that yeah there's sub there's subcultures and subcultures will have their own logics that fit within their repertoire and within their internal kind of dialogue of meaning mm-hmm. um, but we must not confuse them because they're not always fashion subcultures. Okay. Like the Amish are not a fashion subculture. There's not a rapid interplay. We're not wondering what the Amish are going to wear five years from now or 10 years right. from now. We know what the Amish will wear. They're an anti-fashion yeah. uh, form of dress. And so okay. they transgress society and they transgress um, the market and, and consumerism and on the different facets of fashion by virtue of their dress. But but punks also transgress. They mm-hmm. They might choose to just wear the same thing for years on end um, you know, I, I went through a transgressive stage where I wore a black, uh, tight fitting t-shirt in my thirties and jeans for, I think for like a couple of years, I just had like 20 of these shirts and, <laughs> and I just, I'm not doing it. Like I'm yeah. not doing it. And, um, and so that's anti-fashion and anti-fashion is something where you, you react against kind of the, that rapid interplay and you refuse it. Um, but tribes have anti-fashion tribes are not fashion societies. So, the hmm. medicine man isn't like going to change up his outfit every day. You know, he's yeah. just got his, you know, he's got, he's got whatever that, you know, maybe some animal he killed. He puts on that same thing every day and it's a uniform. Mm-hmm. And so these are uniforms and it's different than fashion. So that maybe helps kind of tease yeah. out a little more about how fashion operates. That's very helpful. Yeah. That, that, can you say the, the language again, the rapid uh, trend, the rapid, what, what was the it? rapid interplay, interplay of clothing? Yeah. yeah. Is, is there in fashion theory, is there a set time or does it kind of depend on the culture? Is it every five years or 10 years or is it kind of a vague uh, understanding? So, you know, fashion theorists don't, don't agree on everything. Um, 
Uh, sure. In terms of the way in which, um, you know, the rapid nature of that dress, I think that it can vary and it varies at different times, different pl- places. Mm. And so at what point you end up kind of like being in a fashion system, I'm not sure if there's a hard and fast like way of like defining that. Um, and I don't, but I do know um, there are clear examples of where you have a fashion system and then where you have a uniform and then there's a lot of transit in between those Um and so, uh, yeah, but generally speaking, fashion theorists want to say that fashion emerged. Um, the dominant theory is in the West, in the north of Italy, the modern modern fashion system in the north of Italy around the time of Aquinas, um, okay. which is why Aquinas talked about fashion in the Summa. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. So um, even before that, uh, there was this debate, and I can't remember who was talking about it, if it was Tertullian or Augustine or someone before them. Uh, about the uh, the pallium, I think I'm pronouncing that right. The pallium versus the toga, mm-hmm. and that Christians ought to wear the more modest pallium. And I look at, I even look at the picture, and it to me it doesn't look that different. Mm-hmm. Um, but to them, I'm sure it's a world of difference. Mm-hmm. But a, a pallium was like a more modest. It, it covered your arm, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was like, was that a fashion debate uh, uh, proper, or was that like a proto fashion debate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Tertullian is aware that. Um, that the the broader culture can begin prescribing what we're going to be wearing and and mm. and that really made Tertullian nervous. Yeah. Um Tertullian's theology of culture, which which really the book I wrote is kind of like basically a a, a you know a theology of culture or cultural theology, if you will. Yeah. Um and Tertullian wants to draw a really hard and fast distinction and keep everything within the church. And so in many ways, you know, we talk about I mean, it's been popular to say among uh, certain groups that the church is a polis. You know, the church needs to generate all its own culture. Right. And uh, that just is ridiculous. Like, like <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know about your church, but we'd have to go back to the Stone Ages if we were just, I mean, and I've right. got a smart church. I mean, we have some astrophysicists and bright mm-hmm. people, but nobody can do everything. Like, we have to be a part of a broader culture. Yeah. And we borrow from larger um, uh, non-Christian or a-Christian um, you know, cultural products and ideas. Mm-hmm. And there's no hermetically sealed way to do this. But Tertullian wants to keep that because in many ways he wants to have a federal system. He also wants to see a uniformity of culture. Augustine challenges that in the city of God is all about the idea that um, God could, can be working um, and Christianity can trend, transcend the Roman Empire. Yeah. And so Augustine is relativizing dress in order to retain his argument um, and, uh, and so, yeah, the pallium, when we look at the pallium in the toga, which is what Tertullian was writing about in, mm-hmm. in one of his monographs that no, no decent Christian man should ever wear a toga. And you look at the difference between a pallium and a toga, you think, I don't even see a difference, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and, and the difference really, I don't think the difference was that profound in his own culture. Hmm. I think that what really mattered was that, that the job of um, church fathers at that time in the mind of Tertullian was to adjudicate between cultural differences and set up a uniformity because only if you had uniformity, can you have unity. Hmm. And Augustine does not like that idea that uniformity and unity are the same thing. And he's going to, and that actually goes all the way through Augustine's theology, not just in terms of his view of dress. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Yeah, that's great. And I I think that uh, going back to the the Dutch thought that, they, I think they want to pull from Augustine in that and talk about the unity in diversity and saying, you know, we don't we don't sacrifice uh, the diversity 
for the sake of uniformity, we, we can have unity and still have diversity. And uh, that's what Kuiper talks about in the organic motif and Bob Inc. even further, mm-hmm. um, which is just fantastic. And, and that's, again, why I love this book, because I think it fits so nicely within that frame. Uh, but, but you mentioned how how modern fashion or, or fashion uh, started uh, around Aquinas' time. And I thought that was interesting, uh, thinking through Aquinas and, and temperance and what he was up to with his treatment of fashion. Would would you place him as, um, is he similar to Augustine in, in wanting to find this, this golden mean of, you know, not, not too much and not too little? Or was he more on the Tertullian side or was he more, you know, uh, uh, lenient in his flat. Where do you where do you put Aquinas? Yeah, Aquinas knew what he was trying to do. He was trying to reconcile Christian theology with Aristotelian ethics, mm-hmm. the Nicomachean ethics, yeah. which is all about the golden mean. And he recognized within Augustine resources for his own project. Um, you know, Augustine is writing, of course, the City of God at a very different time, in which Aquinas is, you know, writing yeah. the Summa. And uh, when Aquinas is writing the Summa, he's attempting to give a kind of a comprehensive understanding of how dress works within um, pre-modern forms of distributive justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so, and the, and the role of hospi- hospitality and the role of virtue in the way we dress, where I think Augustine is much more interested in trying to get away from the kind of narrowness of Tertullian Mm-hmm. Uh, because he had his own kind of Tertullianites that he was dealing with yeah. uh, during his own day, right? Because yeah. he's a couple hundred years after Tertullian, right. but he's you know so so Aquinas is definitely all about um, uh, temperance and moderation and a mean. That's huge for his uh, understanding of what you do when you dress. Yeah, and and I I um I really liked it too. So your your book uh, reminded me about the city of God. And it's just like, man, I want to pick that back up and read it because, you know, it, it was, it was really encouraging that. And same thing with Aquinas, like, man, I want to read this for myself as well, but particularly that, that view of temperance. And I think that's, I don't want to be a curmudgeon and harp on, you know, the, the lost of the past, but I don't hear a ton about temperance today. And I think it's really challenging to bring up temperance when it comes to clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and just thinking like, yeah, I'm going to be temperate. I'm going to be, uh, not overly modest and not, not a curmudgeon, but I'm also going to consider what I wear and how that affects people and how it, how this uh, affects my virtue, how this affects, you know, who I am and give thought to even my clothes. I I was really challenged by that. It was really, uh, really fun to think through. Mm -hmm. So, um, so would you say that once Aquinas started thinking about fashion, that, that brought into Christian theology, this idea that we should consider, what we wear or um, that, that what we wear can affect our uh, virtue or and can help us. Uh, well, what did Aquinas add to the conversation, I guess? Yeah, Aquinas is, Aquinas is not adding virtue as the issue um, with dress. That was an assumption that Christian theologians have held um, all the way through. <laughs> okay, yeah. so, um, and, but he's challenging the way in which we understand the virtuous dress. And virtuous dress is not that we are uh, uniform in, in dressing just like every other believer. Uh, remember, Tertullian is writing from North Africa, and the culture that Tertullian is writing in actually ends up getting picked up, and then it becomes, um, in many ways, uh, just digested and embraced within Islam, okay, where women are covered head to toe, okay? So yeah. Tertullian's writing in that culture, okay, yeah. as a Christian. This is wow. before North Africa is conquered by, right. by Muslims. Muslims. Uh, so, um, 
And uh, Augustine is a Latinist, and um, and so he's writing uh, not in North African. You know, there's a huge difference between North African Christian culture and Latin Christian culture hmm. in the fourth century. Yeah. And so Augustine's writing from a very different uh, kind of cultural perspective, but he's also um, interested in virtue. Uh, but he wants to talk about other virtues beyond just simply um, modesty. He wants to talk about the virtue of of um, of harmony within society. Yeah. Uh, and so Augustine wants to talk about the way in which we can actually impact things such that we help society work better um, in light of the way we're dressing. We're, we're, you know, all things being equal, we're helping out just kind of the social order. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Augustine's thinking in those terms and hermeneutics and, the, yeah. and complex societies and how dress works in complex societies. Yeah. Uh, but Aquinas has a different agenda. Aquinas wants to talk about virtue in terms of giving honor to those to whom honor is due, which is actually a phrase in scripture. Mm -hmm. And Aquinas wants to say, when you get dressed by and large, it's not about you. It's not, it's not all just about you and your own expression, which this really pushes back against where we're at today. Right. Right. Aquinas wants to say, uh, when you get dressed, you're getting dressed with the idea that someone's going to look at you. Mm -hmm. So own that and think to yourself, how can I be hospitable? to the people that are going to um, see me today, to who mm-hmm. I appear to. How can I, how can I in, in show dignity and respect? Um, and we know this intrinsically. You don't show up on your wedding day in flip-flops and, you know, right. in a swimsuit. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. Your bride-to-be would smack you. <laughs> right, right, right. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really helpful. And and for me, uh, it, what, what's interesting is it's not just – uh, it's not just about lust. It's not just about, hey, you know, don't cause others to stumble. It's about there's there's even more to it in, in giving honor. And I wonder what else um, what else could be at play here? Is it, you know, giving honor to, to those who deserve it? Would, would would he consider, you know, if you're going to, to someone of lower uh, economic means, not not flaunting your, your wealth through your clothes? Is that another aspect of this uh, virtuous dress? Yeah, I think that would be, um, I think that he would want to say that there's a way in which we can carry ourselves with dignity and a way in which we can treat others with dignity. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I constantly hear from people just kind of a, on one hand, you want to reduce dress to the issue of modesty. Um, and that, and that's something that I wrote the book in order to push against because Mm. there's so much more that needs to be said. Um, and anyone that does fashion studies immediately understands that modesty is only, uh, one, one conversation within a world of discussion. Um, but on the other hand, I want to say is, you know, that that doesn't mean as Christians, we throw out the issue of modesty. You do communicate, uh, things such as sexual availability, um, by the way you dress, you do draw the eye. Uh, to to certain kind of focal points when you're getting dressed, and um, and so uh, we do have a responsibility in that area. And I think, um, uh, yeah. But Aquinas is, wants to say that there's just so much more in terms of. But we need to remember also Aquinas is writing during a time of pre-modern understandings yes. of distributive justice, which yeah. wouldn't really match with our modern sense. Yeah, yeah. That that's helpful. Um, this question might be better asked uh, later, but I'm going to ask it, and we can we can pause and, and go back if we need to. But uh, for for um, for Aristotle and then for Aquinas who picks him up, there's there's a strong sense of the natural uh, law and the, the natural fittingness. Uh, 
and, and Aquinas who, who wants to find this, this kind of natural law. Um, and he's a realist about even definitions that we can define things according to their natures. Does he see, is there an appropriate way, way to dress for your status in society? Like you ought not dress above, like a, a janitor ought to wear his janitor uniform and not, um, you know, a gold chain or, or not a, a three-piece suit when he's doing it. Is there anything like that with, with Aquinas that he's pulling from his, his natural law kind of stuff? Yeah, there's two things that you actually brought up there. One is um, uh, understanding the the body as um, giving us cues or mm-hmm. clues as to um, uh, who we are. And, um, you know, uh, and uh, on one hand, you have kind of this natural law on steroids with Tertullian, where Tertullian will say, you can't, uh, you should never dye your hair because God didn't right. give you, you know, he yeah. gave you gray hair. So deal yeah. with it. Right. <laughs> you know? I hear that um, still today. I still hear that same sent- sentiment, right? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Certain certain circles. Yeah. yeah. Depends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This kind of like uh, natural law on steroids. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and then you have like a Augustine pushing against that, you know, well, you know, if, um, you know, if, if a wife wants to like help out, you know, her husband, she can, you know, yeah. dress up for him, use some makeup, you know. Yeah. Rouge, yeah. It, yeah. And Aquinas, Aquinas is like, yeah, you know, so they're, they're, you know, punching holes in this kind of, uh, this kind of idea of natural law. But on the other hand, um, you know, Aquinas does have this idea of society as, as an organism. Mm-hmm. Society is um, this kind of organism and it's hierarchical. Uh, and so within that hierarchy, you, um, you display uh, the appropriate dress and level of um, formality in light of where somebody fits within that hierarchy within society. Yeah. And we no longer have that view of society. And right. so some of the things he says about uh, dress, I think, would just throw us off. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's so important to remember that that they're they're men of their times and their their seats in Laban, and uh, yeah, they're we don't just pluck from that and cherry pick and then throw that into your pulpit uh, this coming week. Uh, I, w- I wanted to move on to Calvin because I thought Calvin was another interesting uh, uh, case because you could. Depending on how much you've read of Calvin or what you read of Calvin, he can be this austere, gaunt, you know, uh, really simple man who only wore black, and uh, and that's who he is. But but he's also a Frenchman, and uh, he also has some views on on fashion. And so, can you can you help us think through what, what was Calvin's view, um, maybe in comparison to Aquinas? Uh, how much did he differ? Or what was Calvin's view on on fashion? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Calvin wrote so much. He had mm-hmm. so much to say about dress and fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's shocking. If you want to go into it, you know, um, but then when you realize actually Calvin was doing what all civil magistrates, as all ecclesial magistrates were tasked by civil magistrates to do, which is to talk about early modern sumptuary legislation and to to kind of support sumptuary legislation. Um which was a way in which in a pre kind of, I mean, this is, this is, you know, before the, this is before any kind of screens or, hmm. you know, the, I mean, how did you communicate by and large by what you were wearing? How would you know someone's a police officer? It was what they were wearing. How would uh-huh. you know someone was, you know, a dignitary by what they were wearing. So yeah. um, we can kind of look down our noses at um, some tree legislation, but really, we're doing that with kind of an awful lot of technology at our disposal that helps us to 
um, had, you know, honest um, identification and not just live with urban strangers. That's a great uh, point. Yeah, so. that's really. And today you could impersonate a cop by wearing a police uniform and carrying a gun and wearing a badge and think that's a crime so yeah that's we're not even with all our technology there's still laws on that stuff there's still laws on that stuff yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know calvin um is actually incredibly um he's incredibly conflicted in many ways when it comes mm. to fashion you know calvin has this this doctrine he's a humanist he's a humanist mm-hmm. scholar yeah. and calvin a humanist scholars believe that humanity is is endowed with gifts and yeah. beauty and brilliance and there's so much to celebrate right so calvin's yeah. reading the classics and calvin could and when calvin would see human industry or any kind of like production by human beings that was noteworthy he could appreciate it deeply and um and so calvin's calvin's not some sourpuss you know <laughs> i just if i if i had another life i'd spend it entirely uh, disabusing people of these strange views they have of John Calvin. Yeah. People, by and large, who've never read John Calvin, or if they have, they've they've actually never placed him within his context. Mm-hmm. But um, but you know, Calvin had uh, a love for um, beauty, and he believed that beautiful clothing was a gift from God to be celebrated, and mm-hmm. and that there was it was a help in life that we could um, that we could dress up and that we could appreciate each other's appearances. And these are parts of a, a gift of a good creator. But then Calvin also at the same time, uh, Calvin has a pretty radical social ethic. I mean, he would make a lot of woke folks seem kind of lame. You know? huh. Like, huh. Be like, yeah, glad you're on social media. You know, we've all been down at the hospital and helping the, yeah. feed the orphans. And, you yeah. know, Calvin. Yeah, and then the plague. Yeah. All the shame. Yeah, during the plague. So, yeah. Uh, but then you would not separate personal and social righteousness in ways that um, would put us to shame as well. So, mm. so Calvin would would talk about you know you really have to think about how you use your resources and mm. if you're spending all your money on yourself, uh, enjoy the outfit because you're covering yourself in the blood of the poor people. That yes, you, you know. Yeah, I remember that line from the book. Yeah, that was huge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But Calvin, like Calvin, talked about fashion designers. Uh, Calvin talks about, uh, he, he talks about so many things. He talks about this, this, uh, um, there was a popular thing where people would dress up like musicians and pretend like they're musicians as they walk around Geneva, mm-hmm. kind of like people like to dress like rock stars today when they're not rock stars, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it's, there's a lot of relevance to Calvin's like, and he, he talks about how, like, why are you doing that? He's Calvin's like, why are you doing that? Like, why are you, are you breaking, you know, are, are you bearing false witness and you're, yeah. you're doing this, you know, are you being yeah. honest about who you are? And that is something that should throw us into tension is mm-hmm. that one of the messages that comes out from Calvin very loudly, but in other Christians, uh, one of the messages that comes out is, is that we are not to bear false witness, yeah. um, which is fascinating. So that is really fascinating. I wonder just in my head, it pops up, you know, thinking uh, how 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 might i do this well maybe i would i would lease a car that's way beyond me uh and i would i would tell everyone that's my car um, maybe maybe that's just overtly lying if i'm telling them but but if i'm not giving that appearance does just a, a random thought does fashion extend out to uh, objects like like your car or is it is it uh limited to what you put on your body yeah, I think because fashion is oftentimes um, associated with conspicuous consumption or image management, yeah. um, we oftentimes think of fashion in terms of those two vices 
or I don't know, image management's a vice per se, but it becomes a vice quickly, sure. especially if your whole life is spent just simply manufacturing images of yeah. yourself uh, right. and there's no substance to who you are. Um, and so we, so it does, and as I said earlier, that the rapid interplay of um, consumer mm-hmm. objects quickly falls within the logic of fashion. And um, I think sadly, um, many of us live our lives extremely concerned about what other people think about us Mm-hmm. Um, and social media has not helped this at all. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things I want to do in the book is I didn't want to let fashion off the hook, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, but I also didn't yeah. want to villainize it in ways that were not true. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I think you did a great job of that because, uh, it motivated me to think about what I wear more. And my wife is very excited about that. Uh, cause she wants <laughs> me to be more fashionable. And I kind of checked out a while back. Uh, but it, yeah, it did make, it did motivate me that way. And I can imagine someone who is much more uh, concerned about fashion being challenged in that as well from a, from a different aspect saying, do I think too much about, you know, what is this kind of golden mean? What are we looking What What's the right place uh, for, for a Christian to think about fashion? Uh, this, this brought me to the male suit, uh, which, which I found really interesting because I, I never really thought uh, I've I've had just uh, random thoughts here and there about the suit, but I never thought, you know, where did this come from? How did this become what men wear? And uh, and you traced it back. I think it I think to the uh, French Revolution. Is that right? Well, it became popularized in the French Revolution. It actually can be traced back to bankers in London before the French Revolution. And um, okay, that was beforehand. And so for the bankers, was this uh, like an outfit or was this a, a fashion statement for them? Oh gosh, now you're really pushing my memory here <laughs> on the suit. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think that for uh I think that there 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 might I actually not sure. I mean, there okay. definitely is a fashion logic operating when the bankers are doing this. So okay. Um, to what degree it was kind of the, uh, you know, a fashionable thing and how much it was a uniform for bankers. Yeah. I mean, um yeah, but but I think the key thing is that um, the suit also was something that um, pieces of it were also attached to the American Revolution. Um, and mm. it, eventually the idea that every man would have a uniform was a push against hierarchical society. Mm. And um, and it was consonant with the idea that there would be suffrage for all men. Yeah, um, that's right. They, yeah, so. Yeah, which I found interesting. I remember that the suffrage for men because I – I'm not used to that language. I'm always used to women's suffrage. So it struck me that, but, but then it it made sense when I thought through, but it's interesting because just like anything else, you can buy a $5,000 suit or you can buy, you know, a $30 suit off the rack or something. And you still have that higher hierarchy, hierarchical, uh, you still have hierarchy based on, on suits still. And so I thought it was so interesting to think through how, in in one in one view, one logic, you can see yes, this is everyone's dressing the same, and then in a different logic, you're seeing there's still this hierarchy going on, and, and maybe it didn't play out that way back in in uh, when the British were doing it. Do you remember why the French picked it up? What what was that about? Was that about smashing the the hierarchy in society as well? Oh my gosh, Parker! If if you've ever read the history of the French Revolution, it is yeah. shocking. I yeah. think most Americans have no clue. We just think their revolution was like ours. Yeah. They, they actually, I mean, it was crazy. They, people would be killed for dressing like an aristocrat. If you walk through the streets of Paris 
and and you were maybe wearing a vest that had like silk or certain things that were signatures of a higher class, you could you could head to the guillotine. Okay. Uh, and so, um, and in fact, during the high watermark of the the terror in the French Revolution, um, they actually people started dressing like uh, in 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 togas, like classical dress, and everyone went out and, and worshipped the god of reason. Yeah, the cult nature. of reason. I know that one. Yeah, I didn't know about the togas. But, wow. Even worse. Check this out. So um, the uh, the group that was in control at that time actually put together a national uniform that everyone who was French would wear. Um, and so there was this kind of like uniformity. This is what Kuiper talks wow. about when he talks about uniformity. There literally was a uniformity <laughs> that came out of the French Revolution with yeah. uniforms for everyone. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, yeah. So there is this kind of like um, the French Revolution. But coming out of that, they eventually kind of, the male suit became predominant as symbolic of um this kind of equality for all and um and it was embraced by americans as well it was embraced kind of uh kind of as this rising consciousness of this idea that uh, at least amongst men that everyone should be able to vote mm-hmm. everyone should have the same uh, at least legal standing within society um the then 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 there, that ideal was expressed through the suit and it's still expressed to this day through the suit yeah yeah. So, uh, so the the male suit uh, was this was a uh, a marker for for male suffrage for equality of men. But w- we talked French Revolution. If you uh, you know if you're if you're dressing like a bourgeoisie or something, uh, you know it's off to the guillotine. When it hit America, I wonder was were you allowed to wear like flair and and set yourself out? Was it did it does it go against the, the male suffrage to Wear a piece of flair to, to to you know peacock yourself. Do you have any mm-hmm. any idea on that? Yeah. Um, uh, well, let's just say that it was it it you know take like uh, Bo Brummel, okay, who is a fashion mm-hmm. icon in in England. I think because okay. of the Bloodless Revolution, you yeah. might have more flair originating from there. Okay. You know? uh, and so I think it's very local in terms of like, you know, what culture oh, yeah. and where you can have a little bit of flair. So that's a good point. That's yeah. a really good point. And it develops. You can see the development of, um, uh, you know, you can go to like a fashion museum. You can go online, actually, and they have the whole history of like the suit. You can see how uh-huh. it changed, you know, through time, things like yeah. that. So that's really interesting. So it seems like to me, maybe in my generation, I'm a, a younger millennial. The people who wear suits are, are usually they're up here. Uh, just, just to me, like the, the people who wear suits are my professors wear suits. Uh, like professor, you know, with, with uh, elbow pads and stuff, but the people, if I see someone wearing a suit, that's a banker. That's that dude is doing something with stocks. That dude is above me. He's not studying theology. Uh, and it, it, it seems like it's kind of switched from this. We're all equal to now. Some are a little bit more equal than others. Uh, not that I'm begrudging it. If I could get on a really nice suit, I would. I might wear it around. If I ever become a professor, I'll definitely wear some arm pads and uh, try to dress for my station there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so so, so moving on to um, – well, I, I thought maybe we could touch a little bit more on Kuiper and then uh, your idea. You, you bring in Theodrama, and I, I just jump on that because uh, I study here with Dr. Van Hooser, so anytime I hear Theodrama, I'm jumping on that. I don't know how much 
uh, your how important that is to your project. But can you can you discuss um, Kuiper's view of? We already talked a little bit, but a little bit more on Kuiper's view of fashion, and then get into some theodrama stuff. Yeah, um, Kuiper is profound uh, in that he's one of the he's he's one of the first people, not Christians or theologians, to to recognize how important fashion is for civil society and public space, hmm. um, and so he he recognizes that. There's a link between the mediating structures in society and um, the uh, erasure of, um, uh, like, the old form of um, kind of uh, different different classes and statuses and different guilds, all the different kinds of folk clothing that used to exist before the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, he sees that connection there in terms of some of the shifts in society, um, and he's afraid for... Um, uh, for that shift. Um, but, but, you know, profoundly he ends up, um, uh, not only kind of like fearing the, fearing the French and their fashions, but he also, and this is quite interesting is he also says that Christians don't have an option. We have to be engaged in fashion, Hmm. um, simply because, uh, when you look at kind of the pros and cons, um, there's too much at stake in not being a part of the fashion system. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what makes fashion. That's what makes Kuiper really quite interesting. You know, he he can he can acknowledge the losses and he can acknowledge the dangers. And yet at the same time, he doesn't say, you know, um, just keep wearing your your folk clothing that you had from yeah. old Europe, you know, um, be yeah. engaged, but be engaged as a Christian. Yeah, I'm, I really that really resonates with me because I, I really like being an evangelical in the in the theological sense i know that that language gets hijacked and kind of might be out but i want to retrieve it if i can it seems like the evangelical way of saying look we're not going to go full modernist here we're not going to go all the way to the left here but we're also not going to be so staunchly removed from culture that we can't impact it that we can't reach people we want to be in the world but not of the world and that's that's what kuiper's idea seems like to me it, it does seem like that kind of golden mean but but what's interesting is, like you just talked about, he does bring in kind of a moral imperative to be engaging in fashion. I wonder, um, what do you think about that? You know, you personally, are you are you thinking, do, do Christians have a moral uh, obligation to engage in fashion, you think? Or is it kind of like, if you're going to, you need to do so as a Christian? I think something should be said here, which is uh, not everybody needs to be doing the same thing with their life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? uh, I get that sometimes. Um, some people, they they become very concerned with maybe issues of justice or getting clean water, or some people have the gift of evangelism, and we just got to get everybody sharing the gospel with everybody, you know. And so it's so easy for us to kind of take our particular gift or calling and then saying that's what everybody needs to do. There are people that um, have a calling to the world of fashion. And I just got off uh, uh, a a call with um, a young woman who's in Paris and she's started a ministry there and she's been engaged in the fashion industry for years and doing Mm. incredible things, you know, Um, and she's a creator. And she's uh, someone that's, you know, that's her world. That's where God has called her. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, and and not everybody has a knack for it. You know, you can right. just push back with your wife, uh, Parker, and just say, you know, yeah. honey, 
I just don't have an eye for this thing. You know, I've right. got an eye for great arguments. I'm a philosopher. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a budding theologian. Or you know, I'm a pastor. Yeah. I've got a heart for Appreciate preaching. That. Yeah. And uh, and help me. You know, help me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, and so yeah. yeah, we don't yeah. all have the same calling. But I do think that there is um, that. But but dress like every other cultural practice carries within it certain. Um, um, faithful ways as a Christian. And they're not, they're not all the same ways, but there are faithful ways and unfaithful ways to be engaged in that practice. Not all practices are like that. You know, there's things you should not be doing as a Christian. And then there's several things that are part of our life. And those things need to come underneath our Christian convictions. And it will look different for different people in terms of how we end up investing or responding to that cultural practice. Yeah. That's a great point. That, That was very, very helpful. Um, yeah, there's a couple things I'm, I'm I'm tempted to to touch, but I don't want to put my face in the buzzsaw. Um, <laughs> but so thinking thinking about uh, moral imperatives and dress, so maybe not everyone has to uh, engage in fashion in the same manner. That's that's cool. I'm I'm down with that. Um, when it comes to like, temperance, uh, I'm thinking like temperance and like like yoga pants, and I probably always go this way because I'm a dude and very visual and, you know, struggling with pornography when I was young. And, and we never think about uh, guys like me, never think about um, dudes with like after a workout, walking around with a shirt off, it's always like, but girls are wearing yoga pants. It's like, yeah, but this you're trying to show off your abs to these chicks, dude. Like, what are you doing? Um, uh, Why do you think that, this has fallen out. So Tertullian, Augustine, Aquinas, all these dudes that we all look up to, we all admire are talking about fashion and how we ought to dress. It doesn't seem like that's happening as much um, today. And if it is, it is more of the shallow conversation of no good Christian would ever wear yoga pants uh, from, from kind of the, the more fundies. Why do you think it is that we don't address uh, fashion like our founding father or our fathers of the faith did? Mm-hmm. Well, there's so many reasons. Um, one of the reasons, though, I think that we don't recognize is that the same um, expressivism that is implicit within most people's approach to fashion um, has been instrumental in their own conversion to evangelical Christianity. Mm. And um, this idea that I have kind of um, uh, I've, I've followed, you know, what seems right to me, and it's kind of a neo-romanticism that oftentimes is the tracks which Christianity runs on, but it has within it a strong expressivism. And um, so I think it's because of the proximity of fashion to our evangelical faith that we are unable to talk about it, not because of its distance. And and so reducing it to issues of modesty is a helpful way for us to sideline really taking a close look at ourselves as well. Wow, man, that's a great point. Holy cow. Yes. Okay. That's so good. Um, that, that's blowing my mind. What, what other? So, what are we missing? Um, because we make it about modesty so much. Uh, we, 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 you talked about Aquinas and you talked about Calvin Kuyper, um, and and there's more. That's that can be kind of a, a historical study, and this is what they did think. But now moving to kind of the normative, uh, what, what besides modesty? Because I am so so on that train of modesty. Uh, what else are we missing when we're not preaching on this? When we're when we're boiling everything down to modesty, 
today, I, uh, what, what's some other things that, that ought to be addressed in our conversation of theology and fashion? Yeah, I think that when we just simply reduce fashion to modesty, we miss so much. We miss understanding mm-hmm. how we communicate and all the, the depth of communication. We miss understanding erotic comprehension, that a lot of the ways we work through the world um, is in terms of kind of comporting ourselves, right? So we miss understanding what worship is about because so much of, uh, of, of dress is all about our tactile embodied nature, um, mm-hmm. So there's a whole world on that subject. We misunderstanding what modern art is doing because you can't really understand fashion as an art form uh, without at the same time being able to understand how modern art works as an art form and the challenges that has to Christianity and also the opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, we misunderstanding how identity is formed. We misunderstanding how uh, the the uh, the possibility of social identity and the way in which um, uh, personal identity and narrative identity is erased. Um, We don't understand the transgender revolution because we don't understand the way in which fashion assigns identity to identity markers. And those are interchanged regularly and push against all forms of uh, all kind of like standardization of gender. I mean, there's so many things we don't understand, Parker, because we don't understand the world of fashion. (laughs) I mean, I'm teaching a graduate class on fashion theology this summer um, in order to help uh, begin this process of Christians understanding this facet of the world, um, but it's such a window into the modern world that we're all swimming in. But we just simply, we really, I would, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that if you don't understand what fashion is beyond modesty, then you probably, there's an awful lot of the world you're in that does not make sense to you. And, uh, and I don't mean that you agree with it. I just mean, you just have no way of even comprehending how to think about it. Yeah. And yet you're, and yet you are swimming in that world. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it brings in issues of consumerism as well, right? And the role of uh, the material world. It brings in issues of um, how social order is constructed, what social power is. Uh, mm-hmm. you, know, yeah. and, you know, and you can't go to a museum these days without having the fashion wing, you know, where you're going to go look at clothing as a yeah. piece of art. So, yeah. Well, and that, that brings up another point that I wanted to, uh, to talk about, which I guess is contentious. Um, maybe it's it's not as uh, contentious as I picked, or I I think it is. But you know, is is fashion actually art? And I, I like how you you problematized it for us in the book. And I I brought it up to my wife. Just uh, sometimes I like to ask her random questions, and I just go like, you know, is is fashion art? And she's like, yeah, I think so. And I'm like, yeah, but it's like it's a, a utility. You know, you're using it every day. Do you you don't use a painting every day? And so it was really fun to think through that with her. But mm-hmm. I don't know where I land on that because I haven't studied this, but. What, what do you think? What What's the debate there? And then how do you answer it? Is fashion art? Yeah. Oh, wow. You're going to make me let the cat out of the bag. Um, <laughs> yeah, I talk about kind of classical the- theological aesthetics and how that would answer that question. And then how more neo-reformed uh, sources, uh, Calvin Searfield and Nicholas Wolterstorff and others yeah. uh, might answer that question. Um, I do think that not all fashion is art okay. <laughs> sometimes, you know, I, I mean, we're both wearing collared shirts, I think. No, uh, no, I'm just going to plain. Yeah. Plain blue t- okay. You got a non-collar, you got a collar shirt, but both of these are, um, part of the fashions, you know, like kind of system, but neither of the, I don't think either of these are pieces of art. Um, I think that they could become pieces of art, but what, you know, the kind of enchantment process by which something becomes a piece of art, um, probably doesn't have, you know, one or two qualifications. It probably has like, 
a number of possible things and there's a critical mass of those qualifications to which then we would recognize it as art um maybe a through g and if you have like b d and you know f you know then that's enough and if andy warhol comes up and you know um you know i don't know what like signs your shirt and well throw that in the museum yeah (laughs) yeah and and you bring it i mean you put a picture in here of the campbell soup uh uh our, uh, painting, I think for, it was first, and then and then it was on a, a dress as well. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's that is art. And I, I like the the qualification you said. Yeah, if you have like four or five out of ten or something like that, and and I think we kind of in, we kind of do this intuitively, and maybe we don't always have the words for it. But you say, yeah, no, that's art, and that's not. And someone says, well, why? And you're like, I don't know, just is. You know, mm-hmm. you recognize it, I recognize it, but yeah, it is helpful. I'm, it's it's fun to think that that there are people thinking through these kind of things. What what um would I ever so like if I I uh, I love wearing um I love wearing superhero shirts uh with like old old comic books on there uh like the the actual cover from the old comic book I, I think it's great I, I love it I don't know why but I work with college kids and they like it too so is that is that art it's someone's art that's on my shirt but I, th- I could see some people saying well that's kind of a commodification of that art and it's like yeah but it's a it's a comic book. They're commodifying it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how might we go about thinking that? And if you if you answer it is art, then I, that would actually help me with my wife too. But <laughs> uh, well, you know, Walter Benjamin talks about the man- mechanical reproduction of yeah. items yeah. as a disqualifier for it to be art because um, yeah. it, it removes the enchantment. And I I am taken by his argument. Um, yeah. And I think that uh, by virtue of just uh, now, now that doesn't mean that there haven't been, you know, found objects that have been then included in art installations, but oftentimes it's actually a self-reflexive installation and, and the, and the art installation is meant to be a site of meaning, which is challenging canons of art. And so therefore it actually Mm -hmm. is not that it's a mechanically reproduced object that um, we are therefore validating as an art object, but it's actually that it's raising a really uh, interesting question and therefore becoming a valuable site of meaning, aesthetic yeah. meaning, you know, um, and that the therefore qualifies it for being in the, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah, so the intention like outdoes the mechanical nature by which it was made. Yes. Yeah, that's that's great. I like that. Well, I, I, I think you brought that up in the book about the mechanism of mechanical reproduction. I thought that was good, but I, I, I thought it was great and I thought it was convincing as well, but I thought of so in, in the background here, we have, um, I, I forgot the painter's name, but it's Augustine in his study. And it's one of my favorite pictures. I ought to know the, the name of the artist. But behind me here, I have it up on my wall. And it's just a print that I got off of like Etsy or something. And I thought, it is obviously art. Um, it's a beautiful, I think it's one of the most beautiful uh, paintings I've ever seen. I love that style. Uh, I love that whole period. But yet I had someone print it up for me by this mech this mechanistic process does that diminish the the art itself or is it because it's a, it's it's based on a, an original hand drawn hand painted painting does the mechanism does that take it out of it yeah it does it it, okay. it would be far superior to have the original piece yes. in your study and if you yeah. did you would march people in to look at it yes that's true that's true okay okay yeah that's good so so yeah, putting it putting it on a shirt would be even even worse probably because then you you made it like a utility and you're 
you're using it every day. You're using it for clothing. Well, it's I'm not, not saying it's not art. I'm not yeah. saying it's not art. Yeah. I'm just saying that, um, that, uh, that there is the art that, um, and I don't want to get into a Kantian view that art <laughs> is something that requires, you know, um, absorbed attention with no utility. I do not like <laughs> seeing utility as the way in which we qualify what art is. And, okay. Um, yeah. So I think Nicholas Wolterstorff has done, I, I've been very taken by Nick's work and I think his, uh, his recent, uh, work on, uh, on art, um, art rethought, um, really, um, he basically is going to say that it's about sites of meaning mm-hmm. and there's certain kinds of critical masses of sites of, of meaning within certain, uh, images and objects that then we kind of instinctually know that that deserves our attention, though I don't want to say it deserves our um, uh, non, you know, like contemplation. I, I'm not sure if I want to say contemplation, but I want to say okay. attention, right? Okay. Yeah, that's really helpful. Sites of meaning. So does, is it, it, it I don't want to say it's relative, um, but it's kind of relative to us, right? Like uh, the, the sites of meaning, it, because we we give things meaning, and that's okay. God made us in His image. He gives things meaning. We're we're reinterpreters. We reinterpret things, and give things meaning. But what do we do with like the the? Uh, is there an objective nature to art and fashion? I know this is we're getting down uh, far afield here. So sorry about that. I'm dragging you in. No, no it's great. Yeah, it's great. I love this kind of subject. Um, yeah. So is there objective meaning? I guess what I want to say is, is that just because you might want to say that um, the definition of art is that, uh, uh, is that, um, I mean, you know, is, is that it's a, it's a site of meaning that doesn't mean that we've then ruled out like transcendent beauty as uh, one possible reason we might value um, an art piece yeah. or that it can't be used for contemplation um, okay. Or it can't be an object that um, in many ways kind of has a certain kind of um, critical mass of enchantment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, um, uh, you know, that there's lots of reasons why we might consider something a piece of art. And there's many different, uh, you know, most art objects were at one time simply created for a function. Yeah. I think that I recently read that um, there was a conversation about putting all the uh, religious paintings in the museums in Europe back in the churches where they were actually originally uh, placed. And then the next comment was, but we would have nothing to show in our museums. (laughs) 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 Because originally they were meant to be objects that were utilized for worship. Right. 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 And and not just simply to go and stare at it in some secular space uh, with people from all different cultures, you know, in in a Kantian way. Right. Well, that's a great point. Yeah, that's. I I guess I have uh, I've kind of caught that Kantian view uh, accidentally about utility, and and I need to I need to work on that. I I have um I don't know if you ever heard of this before. There's a, a leather company called Saddleback Leather. Um, are you, are you familiar with that at all? No. Yeah, so he's he's great. He's a great guy. He turned out uh, to be a Christian, um, which is cool too, and he has uh really great leather products and uh. It, it makes me think all the time because they're, they're meant to be beat up. They're meant to be like weathered and they're really tough and there's a hundred year warranty and stuff like that. But it is, it, it's like fitting this line between utility and art, I'd say. And it's really beautiful, but I just, I need to rethink that. I need to, this is your book was the first uh, introduction that I had to this. And so it's kind of messing with me a little bit. It's really good, but it's making me think um, where, 
where might someone go? So they read, they read your book. They love this podcast. What's, what's next to study on uh, fashion and is there anything else on fashion theology even out there? Yeah, it's an exciting emerging new field. Um, I feel very honored to um, to have kind of launched it. Um, I am working with two doctoral students right now who are doing their dissertations on fashion theology. Um, and uh, I do know of a Jesuit who teaches at the University of Paris who has just finished a book, I believe, but it's in, Ita- in Italian. Okay. Um, and it's a kind of a Roman Catholic approach. So, uh, uh, so, um, oh gosh, what is his name? Um, oh, um, it's on the tip of my tongue. Alberto, um, Amoroso, I think. Okay. Ambroso, Alberto Ambroso. I had a nice zoom chat with him. I was expecting a monk with, uh, like, uh, you know, with a, with some kind of habit. And the guy was super cool with like a, cool kind of soccer haircut and some and Adidas <laughs> nice. t-shirt. So nice. Jesuits these days. But yeah. um, so he's, he's kind of leading the charge in ways. And, um, uh, and uh, he has a nice article out. Um, and, uh, but this is happening right now and the field is massive. And so if yeah. you know of any students that are interested in doing their dissertation work on the subject, they should definitely reach out to me because there's so many possible dissertations within this field. Yeah. No, that's huge. I, I, I can especially think of, of the, the ethics of it. Uh, and in, intentionality is another big one. You know, that's big in philosophy of mind, but I could definitely see this in in dress and, and for Christians thinking through. So, you know, if I wear a shirt because it's really tight on my arms and I want my arms to look big, you know, is that okay? And thinking through, this is the kind of stuff that I, I work with uh, with college athletes. I work with wrestlers. And these are the kind of things we think through. We're thinking about sanctification. We're thinking, yeah, dude, I want my abs to show, not me, them, because they're super jacked still. But I want, I want to kind of draw attention to this. I worked really hard for it. Well, you know, why not? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it always comes to modesty. And yeah, so, so I've, um, I've, I've been really encouraged uh, by this because it's not just uh, an interesting thing. It, it's very interesting. And I, I usually, I can go for that. You can, you can pique my interest and I'll read a book. But it's actually really cool because of the the whole modesty conversation that I need to be thinking that there's more to it than just this modesty. There's more to how we communicate ourselves to others. And what I thought was so cool as I was reading this, and I think it came up in your uh, in your treatment of Calvin. I'm thinking that the in Genesis three, God made God made uh, he gave animal skins and animal furs to Adam and Eve, and he dressed them. And they tried to dress themselves with fig leaves and it wasn't enough. There's some symbolism there about, you know, you're you're trying to cover your sin with your own works, but God can cover the sin and it's going to cost, you know, a life and it's going to, you need blood sacrifice. But God made them clothes. And God was the first, like, like true good fashion designer here. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the story of Genesis there, um, one of the things we miss is that, uh, is that, um, and this is a great kind of way to bring it to a close, is mm-hmm. before the fall, uh, Adam and Eve uh, were seeing and being seen by each other. And yeah. that we know that's true because of the beautiful poetry that's found when man first, you know, set sight on woman. Yeah. Um, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And, uh, and you know, um, and when we look at the biblical record, what's fascinating is that uh, when that seeing and being seen gets corrupted through sin, God then 
redeems it. And the clothing he gives is not the shoddy stuff, yeah. <laughs> the fig leaves, the makeshift, you know, the kind of the kind of fast fashion we might say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the stuff that's not going to last. God produces some quality that um, is going to provide for them. And, um, and it's, and it's, you know, it's, and so there's just, there's something really beautiful about God's own embrace. I don't know if I want to say God's a fashion designer. Uh, I don't think Calvin (laughs) would like that. Calvin definitely would not like that language, but I will say that there is something, um, that should touch us about the, the biblical theology of clothing from Genesis to Revelation, which is actually my next book, uh, that I'm about halfway through. So, okay. Awesome. Well, uh, Robert, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for the book, man. This is this is really helpful for me. It's it's broadened my uh, perspective, my horizon. It it was really really good. I really enjoyed this book. If someone is thinking about working on this, uh, you know, writing writing a paper on it or doing their dissertation or whatever, um, go ahead and leave that in the comments here, and and I can get to uh, Robert's email here, and we can get we can get you guys in touch. Uh, Robert, any any other places to find you that you want to plug? Anything like that? Yeah, generally speaking, if you Google my name, um, you can find uh, just, you know, my academia.edu website. And uh, I, I serve as a pastor at Christ Church Sierra Madre. And um, you can also reach out to me there. Okay. Uh, but please do. If you'd like to, if you'd like to communi- uh, continue the conversation, I'm, I'm happy to, to do that. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, we could talk about this more, and, and Lord willing, someday we will. But for now, it's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.